Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey, friends. Uh, we've got a uh, two-part podcast. We'll put the first one out, obviously, today. The second one will come out next week, and we're talking about the refugee crisis. And so what we've got today is uh, my friend Jessica and a uh, friend of ours from church named uh, Ruta, is what we're calling her on the uh, podcast. Uh, she's a Burmese refugee. And so what we're doing today, the first half is the three of us uh, talking for about, I think it's the first 23 minutes or so. And then the second half of this podcast is Jessica and just kind of giving us like Refugee 101. And uh, it'll be great for, for those who are kind of new to the uh, crisis in terms of some of the basic details about it. Uh, Jessica has a uh, piece that came out in the Washington Post a couple weeks ago about the effect of some of the political discourse that's been tossed around recently that uh, I'll have linked in the notes that I'd encourage you to check out as well. Uh, next week, um, originally this was supposed to be just like one podcast with a couple different people, um, but the conversations were so good, they ended up going longer. And uh, so next week we've got my buddy Ramjan, who is, uh, he's Rwandan. He was born as a refugee in the Congo. And then after um, the uh, genocide that happened in Rwanda, he was able to come back home to Rwanda. And then recently he he's moved to the States, not as a refugee, um, but by choice. And he does some really cool stuff uh, with some refugee friends of ours in Austin that I think you're going to really like that conversation next week. But this week, um, here we go. Uh, this is uh, Jessica and Ruta and... Yeah, for the first part, and then 23, it's just going to be, at 23 minutes, will be just me and Jessica. So, here we go. All right, let's start. Um, hello, Jessica. Hello, Luke. Dr. Jessica Goodell. Yes. Uh, you always get mad if I don't say doctor. You're one of I do. People. I always get mad. I yeah. assume everyone's going to call me doctor. Yeah. No, no, I'm not. Every time I see you at church, it's just like, hello, hi, Dr. Jessica. I do. Yes. I put in all my name tags. Yeah, of course. All right. Would you like to introduce our, our other friend today? Yes. I am so excited to be here with Ruta, who is from Burma. Um, she can tell you a little bit more about herself, but Ruta is her is the name that she's picked because she still has family members in danger in Burma. And so that's when we talk and tell her story, that's the name that she uses. Welcome, yeah. Ruta. Thanks for being here. Hi. Hi. Okay, so how long have you been here in the States? Um, six years. And when did you first meet Jessica? Uh, maybe in 2013. 2013? Yeah. So you guys met in 2013, a couple of years ago. How did you guys first meet? Um, I started going to OBS Over mm-hmm. because Stephen family invited me. Mm-hmm. And that's how we started to know Jessica. We actually met before that. And I don't know if you remember this, but when you moved into the villages at Lamar, we were there. Um, we met your family probably a little bit before that. Um, when your mom started working with us and our nonprofit, working with Burmese refugee artisans. So maybe 2000. When did you come here? 2010. 2010. Yeah. So we met you right around 2010, 2011. Yeah. Do you remember that? Probably. You were young. Yeah, I know. I don't much. You were in middle school. When? How old were you when you moved here? Um, 12, 12. Yeah. So I, I don't remember a lot from when I was 12 either. So, <laughs> yeah. 
So I used to live uh, up north in the United States in a place called Philadelphia. And so I moved to, to Texas when I started going to college. And Texas is a state unlike any other state. It's a very unique state. So even within the United States, if you move to Texas, you're like, wow, this is, this is different. What was like the biggest difference for you when you came to Texas um, for the first time? Well, first, people are different. Really? Yeah, people. What way? How are, how are people different? Uh, the culture, the language. Yeah. So when you moved here, did you hadn't learned any English at that point, right? No, but I just know, hi, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> did you learn how to say howdy, or was it just a hi? Just hi. Just hi. And so your, uh, your native language is? Kachin. Kachin. You want to explain what Kachin is? Mm. Do you want me to explain it? So in Burma, there are several different groups. Um, we call them hill tribe groups, and it means that they're different they're different ethnically and they're different culturally and they use, they have different languages. And so, and several of the groups go all throughout Southeast Asia. So the Hmong group will be in Laos and Thailand and in different places in China. And one of the groups is Kachen and there are others, Karen, Kareni, Chen. Um, and so when the Burmese refugees come over, often they've been persecuted from being of a different ethnic type. And so um, Ruta's family is from the Kachin state, and they speak mm-hmm. Kachin, which is a different language from Chen. So some of the people that come to our church, um, they have a Chen husband and a Kachin wife, and so their only common language is Burmese. So Ruta actually mm-hmm. speaks, how many languages do you speak? Three. Three. So Kachin is her first language, and then Burmese is her second language, right? Yeah. Well, you're doing better than me. I barely got English. I'm still working <laughs> on that. When, when Jessica says persecuted what what was that like what was persecution like back home before you guys left or that caused you guys to leave mostly they just whenever they think that you're a bad guy they would just persecute you like lock you up for no reason no Mm -hmm. questioning who who was it just the government Mm -hmm. so the the junta and that we we use the word burma because um they, the junta, the army that took over the dictatorship, changed it from Burma to Myanmar. And so most of the refugees I know use the word Burma. Either one is interchangeable. But in Burma, the the army is called the Tatmada. And the Tatmada often has been um, ch- persecuting different ethnic groups. And so tell them a little bit about the story about your, your dad, why they were coming after your dad. Um they started with rumor saying like my dad is like a spy for Kachin army and between like between Kachin army and Burmese army. So my dad said like I I know I have no idea what t- you're talking about, but they just say that you are going to get um, locked up because you are not like answering the questions because my dad don't know any answers to that. So we just ran away as soon as they. The um, villagers say that the armies are coming. Hmm. Did you have other like neighbors or friends or people you heard of who they had said, we're going to lock you up too and saw what happened to them? And, th- and that's why you guys left? No, the villagers know my dad. Yeah. Just, but this, has happened, this had happened to other villagers. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And when they got locked up, it meant they went to like a prison and they stayed there for a long time? Is yes. That, yeah. Mm. And there was no way for them to prove that they're innocent and to get back on with their life. They just... Yeah. It's like 
when when I was 12, I moved to a different state and I was really sad about leaving the house that I was I grew up in. And like I remember we had when in, in the United States when you sell a house, you put a sign in front of your house by mm-hmm. the real estate person, the person who's selling your house. And I remember like throwing a football at it cuz I was real mad cuz I didn't want to leave my my home cuz that's where I grew up. And that was just moving to a different state a couple hours away. What was it like for you having to just pack up and leave in a very quick fashion and having the feeling like you, you might not get to go back there? What, what does that feel like? I actually didn't know that I was not coming back. I just thought that we were visiting my aunt. Hmm. So I didn't know. When did you find out? Uh, when we get to my aunt's house. How, how far away was your aunt's house from... Uh, five miles I'm not sure okay tell him about that day tell him about you're seeing your friend in the street remember yeah my friend it was right after school so I thought I'm coming back so I just waved at her and she's like oh bye see you later but it's like forever bye yeah <laughs> and I never have been able to contact with her would you then. would you like to contact her yeah I would yeah, yeah. Would, if you were able to go back home, would you like to move back home? Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing I think that separates um, refugees from people who immigrate to the United States. So, you know, I'm the descendant of immigrants and I was myself an immigrant to um, Brazil and to Chile. And I made the choice to go there and we went there for jobs and um, learned the language and, refugees don't come here because they want to build a new life. Refugees have no choice. And that's the difference between, um, so an asylum seeker is someone who crosses a border because they have no other option. So at one point, Ruth and her family were asylum seekers. And she needs to tell you that story because it's pretty powerful. Um, trying to get refugee status in Malaysia. Um, and that's who is in Europe right now. They're asylum seekers from Syria and asylum seekers from various regions in order to be declared a, to be declared a refugee, they have to prove that if they were to return to their home country, it, they would be mm-hmm. killed or tortured. And so, when we talk about refugees, there's literally no other option. And I think that's the thing that's the hardest is this is not every time I talk to Ruth's dad, he tells me how much he not every time, but often he, how much he wishes that they could go back. This is not what they planned or what they intended, and it's hard. Mm. And so, yeah. So the number is like 65 million uh, that you you recently had a a piece in the Washington Post and you quoted a number saying there's 65 million displaced people. Displaced people. Mm-hmm. How many of those would be classified as refugees? I don't know how many of those are classified as refugees versus asylum seekers, but I know that less than 1% of refugees are resettled. So the the amount of refugees that are resettled. So asylum seekers prove to the agencies, you don't have to get into all of it, are vetted, go through this whole process. It takes years. Of those who are eligible for resettlement, less than 1% end up being resettled in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think that that's right. Instead of less than 1% of the displaced people, whatever it is, they're just thousands that are that mm-hmm. are resettled anywhere and millions that, that still need home and don't have an option to return to their home country. Were you old enough to really be aware of the process of being... Uh, to be classified as a refugee and having to go through like the uh, the vetting process to to move from the category of asylum seeker to refugee, or were you too young? That was what your parents were yeah. doing. Yeah, 
Tell them about the trip that you took into Malaysia. Um, at first, I thought we were going to stay in Thailand, but my dad told us that we're just staying here in Thailand for like a week or so. So after that, they just called us from the apartment that we were staying, and we went with a truck, and then with a boat, and then with a taxi. That's all I remember, because it was not like during the day, it was really dark, so I had to sit in between the truck where you change the gear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I remember like being squeezed in the seat and not being feel, uh, not feeling comfortable because I have car sickness, and mm-hmm. I when I like get sick, the driver would just like don't you know don't move, and I have to like stay really still. And it and was where, really hard. What was it like in the back of the car of that truck? I don't remember a lot, but my mom told me that um, I know that my brothers and sisters are in the back because I, I, I can see them, but my dad was in the back of the truck, in the trunk, not in the trunk, like in the... the bed of the truck. Yeah, the, the bed, bed of the, the trunk. trunk. And my mom said that my dad has to lay down underneath the um, the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they stacked people. This is how her mom... It, her mom and I have been friends for a long time, and we've talked about the story several times. And um, last year, she told me the story where they stacked people like firewood. And I kept saying, what does that mean? And she, so she would put her hand down and say... So they would like lay a row of people like, the, like this, all facing the same direction. And then perpendicular to that, they would stack people. And then perpendicular to that, they would stack people. And on top, they put all of these logs so that it actually looked like firewood. And so people died people vomited had no op- peed like the the stench was horrific her dad still has some health problems from just from that car ride alone i mean it was a mm-hmm. horrific situation do you know how long that car ride was i don't know you took we started like six i think in the in the afternoon until uh i don't remember what very late and these are really smugglers like that take them across the border. And the word um, in Burmese is coyotes, like like human smugglers, like we say in Spanish. So people who are coming across the border from Central America coming into the United States are also smuggled by coyotes. And so they're people who are paid to bring refugees across the border to safety. There was a, a picture, I don't know if you saw it, but it was a Syrian refugee boy um, who was trying to... M- uh, make a trip across a body of water, didn't make it, and he washed up on the shore. And the the picture went viral. And so, so many people saw it and were moved by I don't know, did you ever see that picture by any chance? No. But but for, for many Americans, the picture was so poignant because we couldn't imagine that. And we could see uh, this cute little boy uh, who... who m- met this terrible fate and it became real to us. And until then for many, it was like, Oh, well that just happened over there. And somehow the picture made it very real to us. When, when you hear stories of people who, who weren't able to get out safely, um, how, how does it make you feel like, how, do you know, uh, I, I would sense like there's a different feeling because you're in a situation where you went through that and you saw that. How, how does it make you, you feel when you see those stories? First, I feel sad for them mm-hmm. that they couldn't make it. And if I could possibly help, I would help them. Because mm-hmm. I know how it feels like to try to escape from things that you don't want to see or know. 
Mm-hmm. Talk about what you want to do with your life. Um, I wanted to study to become a doctor, but because medical is really hard to study, so I decided to I decided to study for nursing, and now I'm taking classes in, at ACC to transfer to for your university. And oh. and why do you want to be a nurse? Um, I want to help um, my mom and my dad especially because they get sick a lot uh, because uh, back in Burma they have to do a lot of uh, hard work not like uh, here in America so I know that their sickness is caused from their past work so I wanted to help them better because their sickness has to be treated with like traditional um, traditional treatment, med- uh, family medicine, yeah. Hmm. So she, having watched her parents navigate the really complex medical system and seen the health effects, they um, worked in mines in Burma, and they've had all kinds of really difficult manual labor jobs, and it's really affected both of their health. Um, and this is one of the things that she really wants to do, is to be the person um, standing in the gap for her parents, but also for people that are like her parents. Hmm. She and her, she and her, her sisters and brothers are pretty amazing. Do you ever hear of some of the, like, the political conversations that take place in the United States about refugees and how uh, different politicians talk and speak about the, the whole refugee situation? Do you ever hear any of that language? No? Mm. no? You can edit this out, but like Donald Trump and some of the others and the way they talk about refugees. Oh, yeah, I've heard it from my friends. How does that, how does that make you feel when you hear uh, some of that language? Frustrating. Mm-hmm. What, what's what's frustrating about it? Um, I feel like they just uh, biasing mm-hmm. without knowing what it really means to be a refugee. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a refugee? Uh, to me, it it's like from like instead of dying, you're living a new life because you have a chance and opportunity Uh, my neighbor here in Austin is uh, from Mexico her and her husband are both Mexican and uh, the other day my wife uh, they have two boys and we have three girls and our two oldest daughters are about the same age as their boys and so they're playing together and somehow they got in the conversation of uh, President-elect Trump, who talked about you know building the wall and send, sending every you know Mexican back home or illegal immigrant back home, and uh, she said he he sounds really mean, um, but everyone I've met is so nice, and everyone I've been around is is so nice, uh, and she was very grateful that the actual humans that she ran into didn't sound like what she heard on the radio. Um, you've obviously gotten to know Jessica pretty well and other people here at at Westover mm-hmm. what has been your experience with uh with like the church and with other people that uh you've gotten to know here in Austin I think it's really great and I'm really grateful that I met good friends and if I would have stayed I feel like um it's good that I move here to the north instead of staying in 290 
uh, East Highway. Mm-hmm. Because back then, um, I didn't have a lot of good friends and the neighbors aren't um, very good. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad I moved here and I came to Westover and met Jessica and everyone here mm-hmm. in Westover. If, if there was someone who's listening to this that has never gotten to meet someone who's gone through a situation like yours mm-hmm. and they don't really know anything about a refugee other than what they've heard on the radio or, or, um, or the news, what, what's the one thing you would hope that they would know about a refugee? Mm, I hope that they don't misunderstand what a refugee means and know that refugees aren't refugee because they want to. They just, they're just trying to get a better life and not having to stay under pressure. One of the things that we think about a lot is, um, so Ruth's little sister is the same age as my oldest daughter. Mm-hmm. And when they were crossing the border, one of the stories that her mom tells is how they crossed the border and the other babies in the group, if they made noises, the coyotes would throw them under the bushes to distract the soldiers that were chasing them. So the babies died on the journey in. And her sister was a baby. Her sister who's now in fourth grade was a baby at the time. And she prayed over her all night that she wouldn't, I still can't tell the story, that she wouldn't cry. And her sister is now my daughter's best friend. And when I think about what it means to be a refugee, I always think about that story. Like we're having a skating party in a few weeks. And what if her sister weren't here to be at the skating party? Like these aren't just political issues. These are my kids' friends, right? These are, these are people in my life as Richard, knowing them not because they're refugees, but because it's Ruta and her mom King and their family. I mean, these are some of my dearest friends. And that's the kind of stuff that I think if people could stop looking at this as an issue, as people coming over, trying to whatever it is that you think they're trying to do and just recognize that their parents trying to save their kids and families that we love. I think it would, I really think this conversation would change. Yeah. All right. I can't talk anymore after that story. (laughs) So we're going to wrap up right now. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. No problem. Yeah. Thanks, Jessica. And thanks for not telling the story about how we met. I could, you want me to tell it? <laughs> I, I, I really don't remember, to be honest, at this point. So I, I kind of do want to know it now. Really? It's, so Luke and I went to college together. And we, I was working with um, the orientation group. I don't remember what it was called. But okay, yeah. all I remember is you transferred in. And yeah. you spoke in an Australian accent for like a month. <laughs> and then one day you just stopped. And we were like, I thought that guy was from Australia. And you were like, no. Oh, that's and funny. Like, yeah. Why were you speaking in an Australian accent? I think you were like hanging out with the international students. And so therefore you like spoke in an Australian accent, but then like one day you just stopped. And just stopped. And yeah. then that was it. And I was like, what happened? So you him? really believed I was Australian. I, you know, I don't think I really thought about it that much. Cause why would you pretend <laughs> to be Australian if you weren't? <laughs> and that was, that was all I remembered about you. Like the first several months. There are a lot of other good stories, that's, but I'm, that was the beginning. That's, I'm really proud of that. Yeah, you I'm, should be. I feel like that's one of the weirder stories I've ever heard. That's, so, um, well, you know, why not? I'm really proud of myself for that. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for telling that. Please don't put that on the podcast. I'll probably, yeah, I don't want Janine hearing that. Yeah, I'd really rather none of this be on there. Yeah. Okay, okay. we'll just start. Okay, uh, so let's just do <clears throat> Refugee 101. Okay. Okay, so uh, they've already, they're already going to hear the three categories. Uh, 
Um, just give me the basics. Give me the 30 sec. Give me the one minute. This is what a refugee, this is the situation. Can I tell my story of meeting refugees and explain it? Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Okay, so um, I met um, friends of Ruta's mom when um, we were working with a different church here in town. And when I went to the apartment complex, I realized that there were all of these international people. So there were people from Asia and from Africa, and I didn't understand how everyone ended up in this place. And so over time, I learned about what it means to be a refugee. And it was not something that I knew, and it's not something I don't think, I think people hear the word, but they don't always understand what the term means. And so um, understanding the idea from immigrant to asylum seeker to refugee, the refugees that are resettled here end up in these little pockets of places. So there are apartment complexes that will have people, like the one that we worked with had people from Burundi and from Somalia and Afghanistan and Cuba and so Iraq. What, what, why did why do you have like these clumps of... Because the refugee resettlement agencies will work with different apartments. Hmm. And all of these people, the only thing that they have in common is that they've been resettled by a refugee resettlement agency mm-hmm. in a place. So you end up having this like really interesting group of neighbors from all over the world. Do they have like this like tighten, heightened sense of community because of their fellow like kind of struggle or is it just like, hey, I don't care about you? It depends. I mean, refugees are people, right? So what I think is really interesting is people, when I when I talk about refugees, people often like the inspirational story, which is great, right? There are mm-hmm. a, a lot of really amazing, hardworking, wonderful people, but sometimes they don't like each other and sometimes they have a hard time with each other and yeah. they get grumpy. And, you know, a lot of refugees... It's like their people or something. It's like their peoples. A lot of refugees struggle with um, PTSD and trauma-related issues. Yeah. And so you have a group of people who are struggling with very severe culture shock, many of whom cannot get jobs. Um, they have extreme trauma situations. Um, there was a fire at, a, at a, an apartment complex a few years ago, and many of the refugees had really horrific flashbacks. And so anytime you take a group of people that have been physically injured and emotionally injured to the degree that all refugees have been, it can be complicated, right? Yeah, yeah that's... I. There are situations that I've gone through that, like certain things or flashbacks and triggers to them. And I'm like, what I've gone through is nothing compared yeah. to that. And so I can't imagine how, how you wouldn't do that. But yeah, I mean. Ugh. Nothing has ever taught me about my privilege, like being with refugees. And it, I try really hard not to make them kind of inspirational stories in my own development when mm-hmm. I talk and write about them. And it's really hard not to because um, I often think, like I, I compare myself to what they have gone through. But at the end of the day, I've never faced anything that can begin to touch what they are going through. And it it does put a lot of this in perspective for me. So um, they had no choice but to leave. Many of them lost their children. Many of them have children in Jordan, and they ended up in Lebanon, and they somebody got resettled someplace else. And so there is no chance that their family is ever going to see each other again, much less be together. You know, I, the... And that's just an an easy story. I mean, some of the stories of like one of my friends watched her dad, his leg was blown off by a landmine or saw someone get killed in a bomb or had a relative that disappeared. I mean, you start naming the stories, the frankly, the rape, the murder, the persecution, the torture. It's so heavy. It it hurts just to even be around it. And it's not Mm -hmm. my story. So what do you do about it? What is is the response that 
that people can and should have to this sort of thing because it seems like it's so big there's nothing you you can do to fix it it's like it's on the other side of the world this awful thing's happening but i I don't know what to do so i feel like there that's a great question and i think we often we get into these spaces where we kind of get overwhelmed we have compassion fatigue i get compassion fatigue like there's so many big stories in the world that they just order all kind of end up becoming background noise Mm -hmm. Um, there have never been as many refugees in the world, in the history of the world. I, so I teach college English, and all my students always want to say, since the dawn of time and in the history of the world. It's true right now. In 2015... Well, those are bad phrases. You yeah, know. no, you can't say that. That's too like outside the scope. If you're going to write a five-page paper, and you're talking about since the dawn of time, that's like more than you can talk about in a five-page paper, since right? Since the dawn of time? But it feels significant. So it's, the fact that I start most of my sermons yeah. with since the dawn of time... Since the dawn of time, all you, of humankind has so I should. Said, I, so I shouldn't do that in my sermons. Yeah. Okay, you could, but you could start. You could start that way, and then I'll just give you notes after the end of your sermon, which is normal. <laughs> um, so, but this is actually true. Since the dawn of time, there since hasn't been this sort of. We haven't had this numbers like this. We like so 2015 had more displaced people than we've ever recorded in human history. And so, when we talk about this being a human, this is a humanity crisis on a level that we've never experience as a world as a as as the world right like and yeah. that's there's a pretty broad language to use i don't use that very often right but can, like, we, can we experience it as not the world like uh as mars we as mars yeah. i know so but this is a this is it's a global phenomenon right now and i think the thing that people can do it, it's so big that we can't understand mm-hmm. it there are some things that we can do um one of the things we can do is pay attention i think we can listen to the stories we cannot turn away from what's happening in aleppo this week in aleppo the government attacked, um, well, I'll make this more general so you can edit that out. In in Aleppo, the situation that's happening in Syria, the way that the government is coming in to look at, um, I mean, to attack the rebels and the people that are being displaced. Like, this is current stuff. This isn't stuff that just happened. This is stuff yeah. that is happening, right? And paying attention to it. And I think the other thing is is talking to the people in our daily lives. My conversations with people who say stuff like, oh, well, you know, refugees. When I say, oh, I know refugees and I've heard their stories, let me tell you a little bit about it. That actually does change hearts and minds. I feel like those are some easy steps we can take. And then the other one is really volunteering with refugee groups. And there are a lot of refugee groups. Every major city, even small cities, they have refugee groups. And there are a lot of volunteer opportunities. And it's not hard to get to know refugees. And they're really, just really fun people to get to know. And so the volunteer work is like what? It depends on the situation, right? So a lot of times, um, most refugees need English teachers and need English tutors. A lot of refugee resettlement agencies have um, situations where you can adopt a family. And so a care group will come in and set up a family for a newly resettled, um, set up an apartment for a newly resettled refugee family. And Mm -hmm. um, it's a great opportunity to like get furniture and help them set up their bills. I mean, the amount of information they have to have is overwhelming because they many of them don't speak English mm-hmm. and the ones that do have never had to work in the United States in the way that they do and they have four to six months from the time they arrive until they have to be firmly on their feet providing for their families completely Wait, so say that again four to six months so when re- when families are resettled in the United States so say they're one of the magic few people that get this ticket to be resettled okay they get four to six months worth of support from refugee agencies. And then after that, they have to pay back the U.S. government for the plane tickets that brought them over. So you have a family of eight, like Ruta's family. They have to pay back all of the plane tickets. So you like $2,000 a piece. 
plus they have to be providing for their families immediately. So they, they're done. There's no more support. There's no more stipend. They have to have jobs to provide for their families. Right. And if not, then, then they do what most refugee families do, which is flounder and scramble. Hmm. Yeah. The level of stress is amazing. How do you move to a new country? Don't know the language and have to get a job in four to six. I have no idea. I couldn't do it. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty educated person who speaks two languages and I could not do what they're doing. That's, that's, and how do you do it when you're, when you're dealing with enormous stress, when you're afraid for, how do you do it when you're wearing a hijab and your daughter's wearing a hijab and you're so worried that when she goes to school, she's going to be persecuted? How do you handle that level of stress? I don't know. I don't know how they do this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why some, we started an, uh, a women's cooperative for several years with Ruta's mom and some others in order to provide supplemental income because the women couldn't work enough to provide for their, their families. So we sold their weaving, and they made jewelry, and we sold it. I mean, we scrambled with them to hmm. help them as much as we could. And other groups are doing all kinds of cool stuff. There's a catering business in town with Syrian women so that they can make money on the weekends. I mean, they're really cool groups doing stuff like that. And every city has different stuff. I mean, you literally like Google refugees in your city and you'll find amazing and innovative groups, but it's still, it's not enough. It's never enough. But it's doing something is more than nothing. It's amazing to see the people on the sidelines. Like I have more hope for humanity because, I mean, and that's another big phrase, but I truly do because I really? see, yeah, because of the people I see around refugees. Yeah. You, you don't think that the, because there's people who are causing the refugee crisis yeah. that are, are making their life like this. Um, and there are people who are hampering the refugee crisis by, I don't know in the last year why refugee has become a, in the past, I've worked with refugees for 10 years. Across the political aisle, it didn't matter who, everybody understood that refugees were sort of pure victims in a, of circumstances that were beyond their control, mm-hmm. and they just needed a place to rebuild. And all of a sudden, in the last two years, refugees have almost become a dirty word, and people assume that terrorists are coming in, which is ridiculous because terrorists can come in as tourists or students. There's no reason why terrorists are going to come in as refugees. But the rumor that they might has made this so much harder for refugees. So as hard as it is, it was Mm -hmm. to be a refugee, it's now harder. You quoted some stuff in that Washington Post piece that that seemed to support that theory that refugees are not more likely to be a terrorist than than other groups of people, like you said, like tourists or... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, the the rumor that there are a, there are terrorists coming over as asylum seekers um, is something that may be of concern in some places in Europe. When people are just crossing the border, um, thousands of people are coming over. Um, the people that are being resettled in the United States have gone through 21 different steps especially Syrian refugees. I mean, let's talk about mm-hmm. Syrian refugees, which are the kind of the big concern right now. The Syrian refu- I'm interviewing some Syrian refugees this weekend, and mm-hmm. I'm, I've gotten to know several Syrian refugees in the last few months. The Syrian refugees that are being resettled over here have gone through much worse situations than any other refugees I know, and they've gone through three years, mm-hmm. most of them, of a really extensive vetting process, and they come here to hear we don't like you, we're, they're, they're very afraid right now. And it's, it just, it makes me sick, frankly, that they have gone through so much stress and should have any more stress at all being here. I just, I just can't stand it. No, so when uh, my friend Paul was over in, uh, I think he was just a few miles away from Damascus and was doing stuff with uh, World Vision. Uh, we were talking with him when he got back and I was seeing some of his footage that he'd shot and 
uh, I was like, you know, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? And somehow the, the line from Hotel Rwanda got mm-hmm. brought up. Do you remember the line where mm-hmm. they, the photographer goes, well, yeah, people are going to watch it and then they're going to go on with their life. And, then- and I, I'm, I'm, I'm at fault for that too. Like I, I see it and I'm like, okay, well that's really terrible. And I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's heartbreaking. Uh, that that's, that that's what's going on and people, you know, we don't, we don't know what to do. Um, it doesn't have to be that way though. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that's what's, what I found to be really encouraging is even like at our church on, on mm-hmm. Wednesday nights, people are up here teaching, mm-hmm. teaching English. Mm-hmm. And when you were saying that, I was thinking, well, that's, that's not an unrealistic thing for someone mm-hmm. to do. Like go spend an hour on a Wednesday night and you might not be Dr. Luke Norsley with a doctor in English like you, but you can teach people like basic pronouns and stuff like that. Yeah, seriously. And I, I mean, I will be honest, I'm someone whose life has been upended by refugees. You know, I think I had that tendency for a long time to just hear those stories and you get sad about it and you just kind of get overwhelmed if there's nothing you can do. I, at this point when I started graduate school, I got to know some refugees and slowly but surely that has taken over every part of my life. I, I can't, I, I went to a job last year where I sat in a really nice office and I knew what was happening with my refugee friends mm-hmm. and I couldn't handle it anymore. And that was, there was, it's a long and complicated story, but at the end of the day, we're starting another company in order to employ refugees because we are so compelled by what we see that it, it has changed everything about my life and about our, the trajectory of our lives. And I feel like mm-hmm. When you get involved with people like this, it'll change everything. It just step by step, yeah. things will change. Hmm. That's good. That's good. I feel like we've solved this. Like I think people listen to this, they're gonna like, okay, and it's gonna be solved. Yeah, I think it's gonna be solved. Yeah, I what? think that there's just an easy solution, really. Yeah, yeah. Simple. I think <laughs> listen to the podcast, and then um, you'll know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think being open. All joking aside, being open, opening up your life to this. In, in whatever way that looks like for you, it, it, you'll be shocked how quickly it'll change and you'll be shocked how, how um, amazing it will be when God works in ways that you can't expect. Yeah. It, it's changed me completely and I think it's really cool when that happens. Hmm. That's good. And I was, like, since I've known you since college, I was hoping for something to change you. And so it's glad <laughs> that it took <laughs> the crisis. Uh, Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with